welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast and today I am speaking to the two curators of the exhibition that we have here in the old quad at the Robert Menzies Institute. One is Dr David Kemp who is a lion of the Liberal Party, the unofficial historian of the Liberal Party. He's written several very important works on the history of Australian liberalism and he has also served as a minister in the Howard government in the education and environment portfolios and I think most importantly is an alumni of Melbourne University, like me. We also have our co-curator, Nick Cater here, who's Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. He is a migrant to this country, as you'll probably hear when you hear him speak. He first moved to Australia in 1988 to my old hometown of Adelaide, Adelaide yes. to work for the Adelaide Advertiser. He's worked as a journalist for many years, but most recently has been at the Menzies Research Centre taking it from strength to strength and uh, and of course he's one of the the fathers uh, along with Glyn Davis at the University of Melbourne former vice chancellor of the Robert Menzies Institute and really um, it's thanks to Nick that we're here today. Nick and David, welcome to Afternoon Light. Thank you, Georgina. I wanted to start our conversation today by asking you about the curation process of this exhibition that you've put together here in the old quad. It's fabulous. We've just been walking through it before. And, and David, I know in very early stages of the curation process brought together several key themes that you thought were important in describing who Menzies was, the influences on his his brand of liberalism and, and of course, his enduring legacy. Could you talk me through those? Certainly. Uh, there are a lot of views about Menzies, of course, and one of the main thoughts in putting together this exhibition was to bring together a picture of Menzies that he would recognise as being true to himself, that he had certain thoughts about politics, um, certain aspirations about Australia. He lived a certain lifestyle that mattered a great deal to him uh, and we wanted to represent the man Menzies here, not various conceptions of Menzies that have been put abroad by his political opponents and, and by others who really didn't see themselves as being aligned with Menzies' views, but a view of Menzies that was validly him and that when people had a chance to look at the exhibition, they'd be able to recognise that here was a quite extraordinary and certainly very interesting person who had a great impact on the country that we live in today. Yeah, I think that's so important, isn't it, to our the Menzies historiography and, and of course we're here at Melbourne University in the Bailey Library. We have his personal library that he, he gave to the university on his death, which which also shines a light on 
the the person who is Menzies, the, the the thoughts he had, the way he went about collecting books that that he used very actively as a reference source, but also as as mementos of relationships he developed over time, and and that's another light we can shine on on Menzies the person on his own terms. Well, that's of course been the great treasure on which we've drawn during the exhibition. That uh, to have Menzies' library is to really have an insight into his mind in a way that you probably can't get in any other way because a lot of the things in the library never got specific reference in his speeches uh, and so people wouldn't know about them. But when you look at the library, you see the way in which he engaged with some of the books. A lot of these books have got uh, his own notes and inscriptions in them. And when you see those, you see Menzies thinking about the ideas that are raised in these books and get some sense of his own interests in getting hold of that book, whether he purchased it or whether it was given to him. Uh, the fact that he picked it up and he read it and he notated it uh, was um, probably the best sort of evidence we could lay our hands on uh, to show Menzies' mind at work. And the thing that struck me about that library was the tremendous variety of books in it, that his interests were terribly broad and he loved to let his imagination play on various ideas at the time. So he wasn't constrained by um, narrow policy analysis. Uh, He loved broad ideas and he loved to know what the world was actually like around him and he was interested in the fringe very often as much as he was uh, in the mainstream. And so we clearly had in Menzies a mind that was thinking hard about um, the context in which he was operating and trying to understand it and to position his thinking accordingly so that he could influence it where he felt influence was required. Yeah, I know some people curate their their own libraries or their bookshelves to, you know, especially in the world of Zoom where you have it as your background potentially. You want to have a very impressive set of books and he does have a very impressive set of books but he also has books show that he was a man of many interests, some some very, you know... Very basic, uh, and uh, and and that's great. That shines a light on the true character of the man and the curiosity, I think, of the man too. Um, but Nick, the the exhibitions divided up sort of loosely into looking at at, at Menzies, uh, the the man, and and his sort of origins, and then his political philosophy and and the work he did to develop that and then his achievements and of course the legacy how did you divide that up and it was i think david agree it was it was difficult in in (laughs) that um you know we i think my first time as a curator have you ever been a curator before david i don't think so no (laughs) well it's uh, it's quite a different craft from writing an essay Mm. say where you've got you know plenty of words first of all you've got a limit on the number of words and then you've got to really reduce it to some core elements in order that people can go around and look at it. In uh, we want people to be reasonably engaged with it, but you know they're not going to sort of be studying it and making notes. So you have to put it in a way that that jumps out of them. So we were forced, and we had long discussions actually about what to put in, what what to leave out, what to join together. Right up until the last minute, I think we were still amending, adding bits here and tacking them on. But I did think it was important to start with his origins. Yeah. Um, 
I'm very impressed with a Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, where he, it's 130 pages before he even gets to Johnson's birth, and and that's important. And I think where somebody comes from and, and Menzies' origins, you know, in a in a in a small country town, Japarit, you know, not not with a silver spoon in his mouth, but you know, his father was a, a storekeeper, but he he you know it it wasn't a a plush or privileged background. To understand that, I think, then helps set up the man and and his uh, his deep care and interest in people. You know, one of the f- abiding principles of liberalism, I think, is egalitarianism. Everybody is, deserves equal respect, and that shines through his writing, and, and you can see how it comes from there. So that's the starting point. Then we moved through um, various stages. We talk about him as a parliamentarian. Uh, he was a great... Uh, master of the art of politics, the art and the science, he used to call it. Um, we talk about his patriotism and, and try and separate fact from fiction. We might want to go on to that later. Uh, and uh, we talk about his legacy and a whole lot of other things in between. I think if Menzies um, had a terrific intellect, I think that's one of the things we, we should mention because mm. uh, ideas were important to him. And you can see his thinking growing over the years from the time he was a school student um, and a university student. He was interested in big ideas like the rule of law during the First World War when he was a student on campus. And he saw politics, I think, very much when he got to the political realm as a battle of ideas. Mm. And that's not surprising, perhaps, uh, given the context within which he entered politics because it was shortly after the Russian Revolution. Um, a communist party had been formed and was uh, sending its uh, members into official positions in the trade union movement. Uh, the Labor Party had a socialist objective in 1921, um, partly a result of the influence of some of the same people who set up the Communist Party. Uh, and Menzies entered politics at a time when debate about the future of capitalism, the future of whether socialism was the wave of the future, uh, was very much a live debate. And uh, it really dominated the 1920s and the policy debates then and right into the 1930s and was reinforced by the coming of the Great Depression Mm. and the government of Jack Lang in New South Wales, which in 1931 discussed the socialisation of all major industry in New South Wales within three years Mm -hmm. and wondered whether it would be a constitutional party or a a revolutionary party, whether it would be a people's government governed by regulation or not. Uh, The the extremism of a lot of the politics of the time really, I think, really disturbed Menzies enormously. Yes, and and it's interesting that that real divergence of opinion too. I think in today's day and age, there's a lot of you know arguing over the the sort of very limited spoils of the middle ground of the centre. Whereas whereas in the twenties, the thirties, the forties, you are talking about the you know major ideological differences. Um, one of the items in the collection is some notes that Menzies has taken while he was a law student, and they are on bank nationalisation. They're on um, the Lang government and I think it was into his time as a barrister as well at Selborne Chambers in Melbourne. 
Melbourne, and he's he's writing about these thoughts on these on these big issues, and uh, you can see he's vexed about them. He's he's creating arguments against against them, and I think that's it was clearly he was a, a someone who was curious and a, a deep thinker. And was a you know an incredible reader too, always wanting to learn and, and improve the arguments for his, you know, incredible art of politics mm. down the track. And, and one of the crucial developments internationally at the time, of course, was the failure of collective security after the First World War with the League of Nations, mm. um, and the rise of dictatorships in Europe, and particularly the rise of fascism. And uh, in, late in the 1930s, he visited Germany and tried to make sense of what he saw there and was really quite horrified at the way in which the German people were willing to go along with dictatorial and totalitarian ideas. He thought the Germans probably did have some grievances in the way the peace settlement had been arranged after World War I, but he was he was really horrified at the the way in which fascism was corrupting the institutions of government and uh, how people seem to be so serious in their determination to impose fascist ideas on other countries. But he also saw the fact that the fascist dictators had aroused tremendous enthusiasm from their own young people. That deeply disturbed him, and he came back to Australia and wondered really whether and how the democracies could possibly Mm. build up the level of support that young people uh, he saw in the fascist countries because there were people in Australian politics who were toying with fascist ideas which centred on governing on behalf of the most powerful economic interests in the country mm-hmm. and imposing an ideology on them and he hated that. And, and he became more and more explicit in his belief that liberalism and the belief in the individual person and uh, breaking away from ideology was the way to civil politics. And that became really the main theme of the rest of his political life. Indeed. What, Nick, what did you see, particularly in um, the curation process of this exhibition, as the, the defining aspects of Menzies' liberalism? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I think we wanted, picking up from where David left off, we wanted to make sure that this wasn't, just a bit of, of dull history. This, this right. actually, and the ideas that you've already discussed. You know, I mean, they resonate today, and they come forward in different forms today. Now, that idea David mentioned about the world order, which was um, uh, in a, in a state of flux in the 1930s, was settled really with the peace of World War Two. But now we can look and say, well, that's up for grabs again. So we wanted to make sure that that. Uh, we didn't. We weren't portraying him as somebody back in history. He, he he was a man with ideas that are important, and and his ideas and his quotes resonate today. So we wanted to bring that out. I think the other thing that was important to do was really to point out to possibly people who haven't read or thought much about Menzies that probably almost everything they think about him was wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, the portrayal of him by his enemies, but also I think just a general neglect of teaching of history and, and a lack of interest in that period itself means that people misunderstand it. So we wanted to bring out some of the things that really, really shine about how, what a forward-thinking person he was and what that meant for the country, and mm. that includes um, 
home ownership. It includes his view towards women, uh, his view towards the world. He thought about uh, the world in in broad terms. He wasn't just focused on Britain, as people make out. And we make that point by showing all the number of embassies and consulates that opened during his period in government was huge right across the globe. Uh, So he was a statesman. He was a world statesman. Of course, the political manifestation of of Menzies' liberalism was the Liberal Party of Australia, Mm. which he created in 1944 through the um, bringing together of of 18, correct me if I'm wrong, David, was it 18 18 different organisations, political organisations from around Australia. Um, In the exhibition we have the early minute books of the Federal Women's Committee of the Liberal Party, but we also have the draft Liberal Party platform from 1944. I mean, these are very, very special items that the Liberal Party actually in, in Canberra has has lent us very kindly, which, you know, give a give a real sense. This was a brand new party. This was defined by um, a set of values that are that are written in this in this platform. And it was it was bringing together quite a disparate set of of people and organisations under under one one badge, and uh, and it was highly organised. That was that was a key part of it, wasn't it, David? It was one of the themes of the exhibition is that Menzies was a, an architect of politics. We call mm. him the political architect, and yeah. that has a number of references. He was always very alert to the possibility uh, of reorganising an unsatisfactory political situation was actually embedded in his upbringing because his father-in-law was very active in trying to get a revived Liberal Party operating during the 1920s. And, of course, he was also very instrumental in leading the establishment of a group called the Young Nationalists who were very liberal in intent in a society that was increasingly seeing its policy dominated by powerful business and farmer and union interests And the idea of free trade was far too radical for them at that time. But you could see Menzies gradually thinking, how am I going to deal with a political situation where policy really seems to be the result of powerful vested interests? Mm. How can I find and construct a politics in which the individual and what he called the forgotten people, the whole range of people who weren't organised, could have their views represented And finally, when the United Australia Party began to collapse after the the 1943 election, he began to think, well, what about a party that had its own political philosophy uh, and that was composed not of vested interests but of entirely of individual people? What sort of impact could a party like that have on politics? Could it break free from the politics of the powerful vested interests? And uh, so the Liberal Party in his concept was a party with a philosophy. And that philosophy he was quite clear about. It was a philosophy that was based on what he called liberal thought. And when he set up the party, he said there's a desperate need to revive liberal thought. And in the very motion establishing the Liberal Party, he said the purpose of the party was, quote, to promote liberal thought. And Mm. the liberal thought that he wanted to promote was that the a good society would be based on the freedom of the individual and the right of people to decide how they were going to live and control their own lives. And that was the central element that he hoped to achieve by establishing the party. Yeah, and going back to where you started, Georgine, 18 different factions came together. Uh, it was that central thought 
that bound them together. You know, yeah. it seemed to me that Menzies was was thinking, well, what's the one important idea we can agree on? We might disagree on a hundred different issues, but what's the one thing we can unite around? And it was that very key principle of in, of liberty of individual um, freedom, and and that the 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 individual was more important as an agent of progress than the state, and the state actually was not very helpful at all. So that that was what the beauty of it. It was an idea. It was an idea that, that proved to be very powerful politically, very effective economically, and and very good for the country socially. And I think that underpins that whole post-war era. Uh, and I think that the challenge now, I mean, in contemporary um, politics where everything is split and diversified, you've got identity politics, is to come back again to that central idea yeah. Um, that that to to unite middle Australia, if you like, or a broad swathe of the country around that central idea. We're going to disagree about a whole lot of other things, but sure. we can surely agree that the individual should be free to live his own life within the law uh, and look after the interests of their families and whatever. And I think the the testament to Menzies uh, and the and the work he did to set up the Liberal Party and this political philosophy in 1944 is the timelessness of it. Mm. As you say, these are, these are issues that we're facing today, but they are quintessentially Australian, you know, part of Australian culture, mm. that sense of you know, the individual should be free to live their own life, make, make the best of their own opportunities, um, that those opportunities should be, should be equal, but the outcome is, is what you make of your own life. Um, but, but something that Menzies also placed a strong emphasis on was family and that the family was the most important social unit in society. Um, and, of course, he was very close to his own family and you see that aspects of that in the exhibition, the Heather Henderson, Robert Menzies' daughter and an only surviving child now, she has lent us some lovely items. One is a scarf that she she received from Winston Churchill's daughter, then called Mary Churchill, Mary Soames, she became known as, that is covered in wartime slogans and, and Mary Churchill has written Heather Menzies on it. But that sense that, that Menzies was close to his, his own family but, but also through his political philosophy and his policies and another thing we see in the exhibition is the handbill from the 1949 election which said that the a Menzies Liberal government would um, provide child endowment uh, for the first child of a family. That was, a, that was a quite a significant social policy reform. Uh, David, can you can you speak about the importance of Menzies as a as a family man? How that was part of his political philosophy, not just his own personal experience. I think his family uh, had a tremendous impact on the way he thought about politics. His family was a family that had its own history uh, in liberal politics from the party of Deacon onwards. He also had a, a tremendous regard for the women in his family. His mother, he was close to. I think he was closer to his mother than he was to his father and uh, there was a very good close bond there. He, um, of course, played a tremendous amount of attention to um, Dame Patty, his wife, uh, whose father had been actively involved in politics and indeed was a uh, minister in Menzies' government after 1939. He um, uh, also saw, I think, the tremendous importance to families of the home uh, and 
the purchase of the home became a really very prominent element in his policies. Uh, child endowment, helping families in need was uh, again another innovation uh, of Menzies in his first government. He thought deeply, I think, about the the needs of the family and particularly the fact that families were preoccupied and, and needed a voice in politics and that really fed, or his liberalism fed into that idea and so he was able to crystallise that as a whole political philosophy. And, and Nick, it's interesting when you look at the legacy panel that, that we have mm. in the exhibition that, that I know you were particularly interested in, in making that a key feature of the exhibition, how we see... Uh, some of the key features of the Menzies policies and how they played out on on family life in Australia. So that idea, as David said, of home ownership, that it that it increased to an extraordinary degree during the Menzies period it's of remarkable. government, which yeah. is remarkable. And yeah. that idea that a that a family to be a happy, healthy family, and of course contributing to social cohesion, was you had a home, you you owned your home, you could educate your children, and you could choose how you educated your children, which of course came through in his policies exactly. on state aid for non-government schools, but also the opportunities he offered through the Commonwealth Scholarship for students of, of maybe limited means, like he was, to get a scholarship to, to mm. get ahead and, and study at university. It, it, I mean, he was breaking with the, the, the consensus, the Western European consensus on this, because you know, we had a housing crisis here at the end of World War II. There was a shortage of building materials, a shortage of housing. And some of the housing stock was not of great quality, as, as we, we pointed out. But the, the, uh, exactly the same was happening in Britain, probably much more acute because of German bombing. But the response in Britain and much of Western Europe and certainly probably the whole of Eastern Europe was to build you know, huge blocks of flats and tenement buildings and you know, prefabricated concrete buildings as, as social housing, as council mm. housing in Britain. And um, Menzies had a very different idea. It would encourage and have policies that would allow people to buy their individual homes. So we increased from, what, 50% home ownership after World War II to 70% by the time he retires in, in 1966. And interestingly, in Britain, it took until Margaret Thatcher's time that they caught up with the fact they made a very bad mistake and that people who didn't own their own homes, one, you know, faced a retirement, uncertain retirement where they'd have to be paying rent, but it also led to a huge number of social problems, etc. Margaret Thatcher reversed that policy and, and started selling off the social housing, the council housing to individuals, and that's created in Britain home ownership almost as big as Australia. But he got that, and it, it was very unfashionable thinking. I think David Pastor's called it politically incorrect thinking of its time, mm. that, that the state was not the all-powerful thing that should be in charge of everything, including housing. But we should leave it, leave it to individuals. But these these are debates we still have today. I mean, even in, in recent weeks, we've had some suggestion that, well, maybe Victorians, young people won't ever really own a mm. home in, in Melbourne particularly. It's too expensive. And so, you know, just com- commit to a life of renting and, I mean, that becomes peripatetic. Can you put down your roots? That sort of sense of, of, of the, the pride in your own home. You don't, you don't have that if, if it's a rental property. So it's, um, these are still challenges to this day and they still have an impact on our, on our society. But David, a big, Big feature of the um, exhibition, one I know that you were particularly keen to, to have um, uh, featured, was the 
Menzies is a parliamentarian. His love of parliament, his you know, real respect for the parliament as the ultimate expression of of democracy. Uh, can you can you talk about his commitment as, to the parliament and and his and his life as a parliamentarian? I think his um, determination to put the parliament right at the forefront of his thinking came when he realised during that the Great Depression that. There were plenty of people on the left in Australia who were prepared to do away with Parliament or try to bypass it. And he realised, he knew a lot of history, about history, and he, he realised that Parliament that Australia had had taken really centuries to conceive in Britain and the rule of law depended on that Parliament and its sovereignty and on the independence of the courts to enforce the law. So he saw Parliament as a way of organising the collective power of the community to safeguard the individual. Mm. And if I could just make a, a comment on the side of that, I think the great failure of so much Marxist and other left-wing thinking has been that there was never any theory that the socialist had about how to organise power to protect the individual. And so they ended up with proposals for revolution and radical change which offered no protections to the individual and to human dignity, whereas for Menzies the parliament stood at the absolute centre of his liberalism uh, and its defence was therefore the the key to ensuring that Australia became again a liberal society and continued as such. Uh, and you could see that in the way in which he defended the parliament and parliamentary privilege. It got him into trouble at times. It was so so strong that he, he on one occasion in the Brown case, a, a journalist was brought before the bar of the house because the uh, infringing on parliamentary privilege was the accusation. <laughs> and uh, Menzies got a few slaps over the wrist for <laughs> taking perhaps his uh, uh, understanding of the legal rights of parliament perhaps too far in that case. And I don't think there's been another incident since, but uh, he he wanted to see the parliament develop and to be protected and um, honoured as the basis for a career for people who would were prepared to serve their country rather than going into parliament just as a job. And, and one of the things that I find striking in the text of this exhibition that we as we were working on it over the last almost year now, was that bipartisanship, that sense of friendships across the aisle, um, that, that Menzies and, and his, his opponents in the Labor Party, that they all had that sense that they were, they were there ultimately for the common good of Australia. They would disagree on policy, on political philosophy, but that, that Parliament was, was also a place where you could, you could get things done and work together. And, uh, while you might disagree on the legislation, you could, you know, un- ultimately respect each other as as a as a good citizen willing to do a, a great public service by you know giving up a career that otherwise might be much more lucrative, particularly in Menzies' sense, by giving back to your country. And that the the notes we have um, exchange of letters between Curtin and Menzies, um, uh, the the fact that Menzies was a poor bearer, bearer for Chifley Curtin and Everett's funerals is testament to those. Mm those cross-party relationships. Well, this was one of Menzies' great contributions, I think, to Australia, that that coming out of the 1930s and even 
during the Second World War and afterwards, there was a great deal of bitterness in politics. Class war rhetoric was being thrown around and um, there were political passions that really um, seemed to make politics a, a, an arena of conflict at a level that Menzies felt deeply uncomfortable with. And the thing that he did, I believe, during his time as Prime Minister after 1949 was to restore civility to Australian politics uh, by treating his opponents with respect. Uh, you can go through the Hansards and I think you'd be hard put to find a personal criticism that Benzies made of uh, people on the other side of the House. Arthur Caldwell commented on Menzies' magnanimity Mm. Uh, in relation to those who criticised him. And, uh, of course, when Eddie Ward, who had made the most damaging and false accusations against Menzies during the war, died, uh, his widow was astounded at uh, the generosity with which Menzies spoke about Ward and his career. I mean, that's... And and Menzies, of course, realised that Any society, but particularly a liberal society, depends on a level of civility and agreement between those who run the government. You can't run politics as a moral crusade against the other side of politics. Mm. If you do that, you imperil the country and you imperil the principles. So I I think uh, he changed the political culture in Australia and although there are always people who would like to erode it, by being unduly moralistic and passionate against their political foes. Uh, He and Howard, of course, picked that up as well, that it's important to have friendships across the aisle in the parliament. That's a really important message, isn't it, in today's uh, political scene, where we tend to look at everything, black hats and white hats, you know, and uh, you're either all good or you're all bad. Menzies recognised... I guess this was his fundamental liberal philosophy, you know, that everybody deserves equal respect, even if they're on the other side of the the chamber. But also I think, you know, it's effective if you want to introduce change in the country, if you want to introduce any measure, you need some degree of consensus, don't you? And you can't govern by putting things up that 50% of the country vehemently agree with and 50% don't agree with. We've seen this, of course, in in the States, noticeably with um, Donald Trump. So, that's a very important lesson. I do hope how much this exhibition will go towards restoring that idea. I don't know, but I think we've got to work hard to make sure we do change things back to, to more of the kind of civilised principles that Menzies had. And, and Nick, it also speaks to Menzies' skills and ability as a leader, doesn't it, that he saw the importance of the, the dignity of the office of Prime Minister um, mm. and setting that tone in Parliament um, and, and, and I think across the country of, of one of, of respect. Disagreement, yes, and you know, he certainly wouldn't have hesitated to, to fight an argument to the you know, absolute final, final moments and, and fight it heartily and with, with all, all the skills of his oratory and, and craftiness of his political arguments. But he ultimately showed, I think, great leadership in, in um, always preserving the dignity of his office and really leading by example in his party room and in the parliament and across society and, of course, in international fora as well. Yeah, and he had that self-deprecating quality which comes across in his speeches and in his writings and in in Hansard. And I hope a bit of that comes across in order to offset 
because you you have you know one of the most magnificent things in the exhibition, of course, is his uh, great ceremonial uniform yes. as warden of the Saint Ports. And I wouldn't want people to go away and think that's Menzies. You know, that's very much says something about the British and their pomp and and and, and circumstance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Menzies, I suspect, would have been not terribly comfortable wearing it. He was very much, you know, a man without tickets on himself, I think, and and that's part of his leadership, part of his ability to lead. Yeah, well, I think looking at that, so you're right, it's one of the, the hero pieces in the exhibition mm. on loan from the National Library of Australia. First time the the uniform worn by Menzies when he was installed as Lord Warden of the Sink Ports um, has been on display since 1994, so it's very, very special to have it. But it looks almost brand new because, of course, as you say, Menzies didn't really like to wear it. But I don't expect you wore it in the garden. No, <laughs> no. It has a very fetching sword, though, and I love the boots. They're very well polished, um, but, again, look very, very unworn. But but on that, um, so he was installed as Lord Warden of the Sink Ports in 1965, uh, his final year as Prime Minister before his retirement at a time of his own choosing, which, of course, is extremely rare these days. Uh, and um, he th- that position, he was preceded in that position by Winston Churchill. He was succeeded by the Queen Mother. It's a position that is, is, is awarded to someone who is the sort of defender of the realm, really close to the to the monarch, the Queen, um, but someone who is very close to Britain and has the interest of Britain at heart. Now, for some, that sort of feeds into a narrative of Menzies the Anglophile and British to his bootstraps, but he was much more than that. He was he was a patriot, wasn't he, Nick? He was. I, I think, though, we shouldn't go An past... Australian patriot, I should say. Yeah, too. very much yeah. so, very firmly so, but we shouldn't go past, I think, the fact that he was a great admirer well, he felt part of Greater Britain, if you like. Greater yes. Britain being those English-speaking countries throughout the world where the, the the ideas and principles that arose, you know, surprisingly just on that cloud, you know, cloudy island off the, the coast of Britain, Magna Carta, everything that flows from that. He recognised that that heritage was very important. It gave us our not just our institutions, but the the, the character and the ethos of those institutions. So he was very protective of that, but at the same time, as you say, he was he was an Australian through and through. And um, his accents often, you know, confuses people today because to some people it sounds English, but it's very distinctly Australian accent. Yeah, and, and that comes across. And that, and that was the things. accent of the day too. If you look, listen to recordings of uh, you know TV broadcasters, radio broadcasters. Mm. Uh, yeah. you know, other identities, actors um, at the time of the fifties and sixties, they had a, a much more English-sounding accent than than modern-day Australians do. I think it is worth emphasising the passionate nature of uh, his patriotism. Uh, he, he, when he went to England during the war, his main mission was to ensure that Britain would do the right thing by Australia. And when he returned to Australia, he wasn't at all confident Mm. that Britain would do that. And he made a point of going to the United States and establishing, buying an embassy for Australia there, having a minister appointed to the United States and getting assurances from the United States that they would protect Australia if Australia were attacked. And he came back and gave a speech to that effect, that was broadcast, I think, from the Sydney Town Hall, if I remember rightly. And um, uh, so he was really uh, 
very, very willing to see that uh, America would play a key role in the war well before Curtin mm. uh, made his famous statement about looking to the United States. Menzies had already laid the foundation for that um, because it was Australian security that he was concerned about. Yes. Uh, and, and, of course, that remained a lifelong concern of his um, in relation to the Cold War and how that was going to be handled, to the ANZUS Treaty, to the need for peace in the Pacific, to a good relationship with Japan, uh, which he really pioneered in a way with his government when many Australians didn't want much to do with Japan because of the the war itself. Uh, the, the protection of Australia and its security, I think, were absolutely foremost in his mind. Uh, and... That's not recognised enough, I don't think. I think the nature of the connection with Britain is an interesting one. Uh, but the key thing that Britain, the empire, gave Australia that the American alliance didn't give Australia and no alliance ever could give Australia was that the empire gave Australians a guarantee that they would be represented in a war cabinet mm. and that they would have an influence on how the great power behaved in a more direct way than uh, any other international relationship we could have. And as soon as he realised that the empire was disappearing, he adapted, perhaps a little reluctantly and sadly, but uh, without hesitation to the changed environment to make sure that Australia itself was well protected. Oh, that's right. Well, in, in two years after he became Prime Minister the second time, well, his yeah. government signs the um, Alliance Agreement, the ANZUS Pact, Security Pact with the United States. Uh, which, you know, certainly was um, a very big shift from relying on Britain as your traditional security guarantor and, and alliance partner. You, that We were definitely committing to a course of security relationships but also a, an understanding of the geopolitics of our region and our world that prioritised the United States as the global power and, and, of course, the guarantor of Australian security. And that's that stood the test of time over 70 years on. Nick, I wanted to ask you finally before we finish up this chat um, about the Institute and its place here in the Old Quad and, and this exhibition and, and why why you think it was so important to do. Well, you'd have to go back to 2014 when John Howard brought out his book on Menzies and, and a few of us started talking about the fact there was no institute of this nature, a permanent home for the legacy of our greatest Prime Minister, certainly our longest-serving Prime Minister. I think I could say that without controversy, but most of us would agree he's also our greatest Prime Minister. Mm. So we thought about it and thought, well, if we're going to put a proposal forward, it has to be probably housed at a university and in Melbourne. Uh, and and we, we approached three universities here, Monash and uh, La Trobe, also put in a very compelling proposal. But in the end, this you know, once Glyn Davis had said you know, well, let's talk about putting it in the quad. It was the obvious place. This is where he studied, you know, just in the law library just behind us. It's where he would have served when he was Chancellor on the University Council. You sort of almost feel his presence here. Mm. So it, it's fabulous that that's happened and that the university obviously have seen the importance in terms of their own history and in terms of higher education. So he has a home here now and it's terrific to see and uh, thank you for everything you've done to make it happen, Georgina. Oh, no, it's, uh, it's been a fantastic 
almost year we've been in existence and, of course, a year of COVID too. So it's mm. been not without its significant <laughs> challenges, uh, particularly when you're putting together a, an exhibition <laughs> which requires a lot of in-person physical uh, activities. But it's such a fabulous exhibition and I really do um, want to say a huge thank you to both of you for your efforts in curating it and I am so very much looking forward to welcoming uh, members of the public, the the university community, um, to to come and experience it and learn more about Menzies, his ideas, and of course his enduring legacy and how it touches us to this very day, and and how it can help guide us into the future. So thank you, David, and thank you, Nick. Thank you, Georgina. It's been a pleasure to work with you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.